0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. The sun is rising in Seoul and Tokyo. Anticipation is in the air. And yet again, Toribo West is putting the finishing touches to his World Cup dreadlocks. Terebo's green hair dye arrived in time for the Nigerian team landing in Japan. The same cannot be said for the training gear and juice bottles of the Republic of Ireland. That's right, we're going back to World Cup 2002. What a review we have lined up. Dan remembers fondly the time Robbie Keane made a nation of children spit their cornflakes back into the bowl as he relives Germany versus Ireland. Mush the matchman is live from Shizuoka. To see if the three R's, Ronaldo, Rivaldo and Ronaldinho can send a three Lions packing. And we have a very special World Cup quiz. So, what are we waiting for? Let's get
2: going. The opening game of the World Cup. David Trezeguet strike kissing the beans on toast. As close as we've come. Jupp sees El Jupp spitting for the pass. Jupp fires it into the channel. Surat Jupp picks it up takes on the aging frank nutty Professor Leboeuf, leaves the mad scientist, inhaling the Bunsen burner flames. Jif from the violent crosses into the box. Papa Jump is there. Bautas with the save, but it's fallen back to Jump. Goal, Senegal! What a mix-up by the French. Saucy Senegal won't mind. They have stunned the Le Blues. A catalogue of errors from the very experienced men. Were they smoking again in the changing room? All of a sudden, France 98 is a distant memory away. A Senegal sensationally stunned the world champions here after half an hour.
0: Now, if these next two men were a World Cup defensive pairing, they would have to be Lucio and Roque Jr. If they formed a midfield two, of course it would have to be Matt Holland and Mark Kinsella. And if they played up top in a striking duo, there's no doubt who they would be. 100%. Flip Owen and Vincenzo Montella. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan and Muster Matchman. <laughs> Dan, how are we doing today? Doing
3: great, Stephen. Posing for the 2002 World Cup I just brought back. Many Championship
2: Manager memories there when you mentioned Montella, so buzzing for this.
0: Matchman, are you looking forward to this
2: trip to South Korea and Japan? Yes, I am, Steve. Uh, just want to clear something up here. Dano, you're definitely Rocky Jr. in that partnership. Okay, then you're Mark Kinsella. All right, I'll, I'll settle for that. Uh, yes, looking forward to it, Steve. Great memories, great tournament. Might have had to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning to watch it, but it was well worth it.
0: Oh, absolutely, Dan. Can you remember this summer?
2: Oh,
3: absolutely, Stephen. Uh, education took a back seat as millions of students all over the world got to watch the World Cup in school, and we were some of them. Thankfully, uh, what a time to be alive uh, to be teenagers watching a World Cup.
0: You know, I'm kind of glad we were teenagers because if we were the the age of drinking, like I don't know if I would have fancied getting on it at, at half six in the morning. Like by by lunchtime, you're you're done. Like.
3: Paul oh, Conley was cooked, hey, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone worked the uh, summer of 2002,
0: so... <laughs> oh. Match, man, you've got a retro World Cup 2002 jersey on
2: for us today.
0: It's a solid effort. What have you got for us?
2: Yes, the kit I'm wearing is the Republic of Ireland home jersey from the 2002 World Cup. Unbeaten in the group stage wearing this, a real eye-catching jersey which sticks out in the minds of Ireland fans. Let's be fair, very rare did the Republic have a poor effort of a home jersey. Of course it was a green colour. If it wasn't green, there would have been some serious questions. The jersey was made by Umbro, who debuted their kit designing skills for the Republic of Ireland at this World Cup. No pressure, Umbro, but I feel they delivered. A classic warming green colour with a white round neck, a white trim by the sleeves with a smaller black trim. Don't know why, but it worked contrasting white trimming around the rest of the jersey. Sponsored by Ercom, the Republic of Ireland had finished a long partnership with Opel, and in came the Ireland telecommunications company who put their orange logo bang in the middle of the kit and it didn't look out of place and it tied in well with the Republic of Ireland crest of the football shamrock and a dash of orange in it. They also gave Mick McCarthy a free phone but he couldn't get to grips with it and use it. Maybe that's why there was a hold with the kits and the training gear arriving. Fullback Stevie Finnan, Ian broke a man's heart with his left peg, and his uncle Gary Six-Pack-A-Kelly's were this. Centre-house Kenny, Bob Cunningham, legend Steve stoughton Staunton, Richie O.G. Dunn, and a team of Gary Breen's. Midfielders Matt Neverland's Holland, Lee, one half of the Mitchell brothers' Corsley, Damien Drunken Duffman, Stephen, not Andy Reid, Zinedine Kilban, Roach Jason McAteer, and of course, Roy, I hate everybody apart from Triggs Keane. Up top, the men they had were Clint the Sprint Morrison, Creek Nail Quinn, and of course, Robbie Keane. Of course, the man picking the fine team to be blessed to wear this kit was Mick McCarthy. The kit I'm wearing is the Republic of Ireland home kit from the 2002
0: World Cup. I love that wee trim around the collar. It's very, very nice. Dan... Uh, you you went all out in the last special with a bit of Caribbean flavour. Uh, you're not too far off at this one either. What have you got for us?
3: That's right, Steve. I'm not too far off at all. In fact, it's not even a it's not even a jersey. It's a vest. Today I am wearing the Cameroon away kit from the 2002 World Cup. It is white in design with green, red, and yellow trim around the sleeves, cut off as well. Black sleeves had to be added to this classic as FIFA banned Cameroon from wearing the original vest design. Two badges attached with the lion image on the heart of this shirt to get the Cameroon players pumped. It was worn only once in the two thousand and two World Cup in Cameroon's one-one draw with the Republic of Ireland. Sponsored by Puma, it was worn by the world class Samuel Eto'o, target man Patrick Obama, Sheffield United madman Patrick Sufo, Joseph Desire. I need a job. Eric Jemba Jemba, Luper Lorraine, Uncle Rigobert Song, Mark Vivian Fo, and a man of many careers, Ron Jeremy. Yes, today I am wearing the Cameroon away shirt from the 2002 World Cup.
0: That header from the Battle of and played in this World Cup.
3: He was in the Cameroon squad. I got the shock of my life when I was researching it and looking for the man that wore it, and there he was, Patrick Souffaut, the same season that he lost a plot at Bramall Lane, he was brought to the World Cup.
0: Cameroon must have been short of players, eh? Hey? Big were Short numbers already. Oh, absolute legends in there. A uh, young man, so good, they named him twice, Eric Jamba Jemba.
3: Yes, a legend for any reason other than his playing style. He was he was brutal, although Mush, the match man, had a deep love affair with Eric Jamba Jemba in his teenage years. He did not, and I don't think he played too much for Cameroon, to be fair. He also had a gambling problem and played in the SPR.
0: OK, so moving on now, it's time to look at those teams who qualified for Korea-Japan 2002 and also those teams who missed out either via the playoffs or they just completely underachieved in the qualification round. Dan, it's over to you.
3: Thank you, Stephen. And yes, the road to Japan and Korea was an exciting one. Automatically qualifying was defending champions France, who would be the last set of champions to automatically qualify for a World Cup and dual co-hosts, Japan and South Korea. We'll start things off at the European qualifications with the home nations and Scotland just missing out, finishing third, two points behind Belgium in Group 6, topped by the matchman's favourites, Croatia. Northern Ireland Wales suffered miserable campaigns, finishing fifth in Groups 3 and 5, respectively. England would top Group 9 in dramatic fashion with David Beckham's last gasp equaliser. V Greece, allowing them to pip Germany on goal difference. And the Republic of Ireland, who finished second in Group 2, which was topped by Portugal. And the big story here was that Ireland pipped Holland to qualify. And this overall was a huge headline, as Holland had been semi-finalists at the World Cup 1998 and, indeed, Euro 2000. The playoffs would see Belgium beat Czech Republic, Germany beat Ukraine, Turkey thump Austria 6-0, and the mighty Slovenia, upset a talented Romania team 3-2 on aggregate Top scorers in Europe was Andrei Chivchenko, who sadly would not grace the World Cup with 10 goals Denmark's Ebba Sand with 9 goals 2 men hitting 8 Henrik Larsson and the Portuguese Pauleta In South America a talented Argentina team finished top of the qualifying group with surprise package Ecuador finishing 2nd They were joined by Brazil and Paraguay which sent 5th place Uruguay into the Intercontinental where they had defeated Australia Gadaimite, 3-1 on aggregate led by Alvaro Recoba and Diego Forlan The saddest sight in South America was Zamorano and Salas, Chilean team finishing rock bottom in 10th place and Colombia also missing out on goal difference Top scorers in South America with 9 goals was Ecuador's Delgado and Crespo and with 8 goals Rivaldo and Romario more on that later on. In Africa, seeing the arrival of debut-maker Senegal joining usual suspects, Tunisia, South Africa, Cameroon and Nigeria. Top scorers there was Ivory Coastman, Ibrahim Bagayoko hitting 11 goals but failing to qualify and El Diouf, the lunatic, chipped in with 8 goals for Senegal. Central America and Asia, sadly no room for our good friends Jamaica this time with Costa Rica and Paulo Wanchop hitting seven goals and joining USA and Mexico, while in Asia, Saudi Arabia and China completed the journey of teams for what was sure to be a wonderful World Cup.
0: Dan, you mentioned France there being the last previous winner to qualify automatically. Do you think that scuppered them in the end? You know, they hadn't played any sort of competitive game for, what, two years?
3: Yeah, two years since the, I suppose, the Euro 2000 final. I mean, I guess it goes down to the mentality of the players and France were winners, you know, uh, I don't think that hampered them. I think what hampered the French squad and the players, some of the players were absolutely knackered. Absolutely knackered. They had some of the world's best players.
0: What, from um, their seasons or from the humidity?
3: From their seasons. Um, you know, we had Real Madrid and Zidane, their best player, best player in the world, arguably at the time. Um, he got injured, and you know, Henri was absolutely butchered after his double winning siege with Arsenal. Perez got injured as well, so there's a lot to talk around France.
0: Matchman uh, got to see Jamaica not make it this time, but the Swedes were back, and we know what that means for the matchman. He's looking forward to the camera panning around. Yes, beautiful blonde ladies. Is that all you got to say about the beautiful blondes? That's all I'm going to say, yeah, for the time being. Doesn't want to incriminate himself, that's fine.
1: Hidden from the world. Twenty-four elite players hold a secret tournament with eight teams and only one rule. The Osco wins.
0: That was the brilliant Nike cage advert before the World Cup 2002. Ua Cantona was on a boat with 24 of the world's best players. The final scene, Thierry Henry, Totti and Nakata versus Ronaldo, Roberto, Carlos and Figo. The team of Henry, Totti and Nakata won when Totti went down to tie Shulius, Eric dropped the ball into the cage. Henry ran, jumped up on Totti's back and headed the ball over the little Roberto Carlos and into the tiny goals in the cage, which meant that Ronaldo, Roberto, Carlos and Figo were chucked off the boat and the winners were Henri, Francesco Totti and Nakata. What an ad, what a tune. Now, for some reason going into these competitions, there's always these players that are involved in the qualification, they're big stars, and for whatever reason, they don't make the last 23, whether it's through injury, whether it's through personal preference of a manager. Lads now have looked at who should have been going to the World Cup, who should have been in the squad, but for whatever reason, didn't make it into the 23 Matchman, who have you went with?
2: Yes, Steve. First up is Steve McManaman missing out on the England squad. The leader of the Space Boys, they may have given him a touch about his hair and his cream suit, but he was a terrific player with Liverpool in the 90s and then at Real Madrid, where he scored in a Champions League final with them. McManaman stated he was struggling at the time working out of Ericsson rated him. Well, he found out the answer as Ericsson apparently left a message on McManaman's answering machine to inform him that he was not going to the final World Cup. Granted question marks over McManaman's attitude and game time leading up to the World Cup, surely McManaman's experience and natural ability would have been a great addition to this squad. There was also reports that him and Fowler were two pranksters and there was only room for one of them on the plane, as Gareth Southgate moaned about them
0: Dan I suppose at the time this wasn't so much as a shock but looking back at it now like Real Madrid star Roberto Carlos just could not believe that McManaman wasn't going to be playing in the World Cup for England and when we you know this historical problem of England not having any left-sided midfielders like here was one just born and bred to play in that position
3: looking back at it I I cannot believe that Ericsson didn't bring him he played uh, Owen Hargreaves left midfield he played Trevor Sinclair left midfield. He brought a young Joe Cole, and you know he has this man who plays for Real Madrid every week. He's a winner. He's won two Champions Leagues in three seasons. You know he played in the in the qualifying campaign. He played in the last game against Greece. You know it, it's baffling and very strange. And England just to just make these mad decisions. I don't understand. Who drives it? Where it comes from. You know, has touched there on, on senior players, the likes of Southgate there. Oh, you can't bring two jokers? Well, why not? Yeah. You know, McManaman, when you think about their midfield, it's goals, Button, in Beckham, they were missing Gerard. Why would you not bring McManaman? There's literally no reason not to bring him. They didn't even treat him with enough respect to tell him why properly. They left him a voicemail which is just shoddy behaviour he couldn't even he didn't even have have enough in him to sit down with McManaman or Mm -hmm. a
2: proper phone call you know maybe he was ringing females Mm -hmm. that day but
0: Mush who is the second player that should have been there
2: Yes, the second player is Sergio Canizares. Poor Canazores, the small keeper with the bleach blonde hair and sleeves rolled up, ready to go to war between the sticks for his nation. Really tough luck for Canizares as he was second fiddle in the 90s. So he was finally Spain's number one and said to be the keeper in Japan and Korea until he dropped a bottle of aftershave on his right peg. Was it old space? Was it brute? Or was it a link set he got for Christmas? Who knows? Enter rookie Iker Casillas. He would be Spain's number one for about 54 years. And Canizara has never got his chance again to shine.
0: Absolutely brutal. Dan, who have you got for us that should have been at the World Cup 2002?
2: Kicking
3: things off with Roberto Baggio. Silky striker started the 2001-2002 season at Brescia in fine battle, scoring eight goals in his first nine matches, playing his way back into the least squad as well. But then injury struck... He returned later on the season to save pressure from relegation as captain, but it wasn't enough to convince Giovanni Trapattoni to bring Roberto to the World Cup. It would have been his fourth World Cup in a row as well. Trapattoni plumped for uh, Marco Del Delvecchio. Fans wanted Roberto there, and I feel I feel like Trapattoni was standing up for himself a little bit here and said, "You know what? I'm not going to be seen as a manager who listens." to the fans and the media pressure and I'm going to leave Roberto at home and when you look at the problems Italy had they underperformed at the World Cup and uh, they really could have done with a touch of Baggio there
0: in my opinion What the hell is he doing playing for Brescia? I, they got him
3: they got him he was just he was just looking to play every week obviously players go through different things you know you, you, you come up with the club that, that sort of produces you you want to stay loyal to them then you move on maybe to clubs to win trophies like Baggio did he played for the two Milan's he played for Juventus Near the end of your career, you literally just want to play him. And, you know, he was a hero at Brescia. It's a cracking jersey, by the way. If you ever look up the Brescia jersey. Oh, is it? War, oh, it's, it's class. A real shame.
0: And who's your second heartbreak for us?
3: Oh, well, it touched on him on the qualification campaign, and it's Romario. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. It's not so much, it's a bit of a heartbreak, but he is a party animal. So he scores eight goals in qualifying for Brazil. He gets picked for the 2001 Copa America, but he withdraws through injury. Right, Before He wasn't injured. He went on holiday. And then he came back and played a couple of friendlies for Vasco da Gama for the crack. Instead of going to Copa America, he went on TV again, much like he did in 1998 for a public plea because he knew that people loved him. But Big Phil would not waver. Uh, senior players such as Emerson and Cafu Went to Phil Galore and said, look, we don't want him back. And that was the end of that. Big mistake on Romario's part. Yeah. him out of the Copa America to go on holiday,
0: you know. He, he signed his own death warrant there, didn't he? He just,
3: yeah. And, and that Brazil team was full of, full of winners. You know, they weren't going to suffer any fools. And despite his record and all the rest of it, you know, there was always going to be another good player to take his place. We could
0: have had four hours. Completely different dynamic, though, if he's in there, right? Like, who, oh, who is I mean,
3: they were already gung ho, but it would have just been <laughs> gee, oh, that would have been unbelievable. I don't even know what, what system you play, hey? But, but uh, it would, it would have been class four two four maybe <laughs> would <have> been, with, <laughs> with Carlos and Cafu party or back four. Oh, it would have been brilliant, but <laughs> it would have been I a ba- back, I back, I back on this one.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think he had no choice, Mosh It yeah. could have been f- the five R's actually,
2: because of obviously Rock Jr's in R. Yes, the uh, World Cup winning thief. I'd say Romario may have been a better centre-half than Rocky Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me started.
1: Big
0: Brucie's bedtime bath Nice and warm, full of suds A scented candle, a rubber duck In the bath Brucie don't give a Dreams of passes to be. Dreams of passes to be. Okay, Dan, I've got the story ready Can you just check that Brucie's already in his bath? Steve, I'm sorry to disturb you in the bath
3: I know you jumped in early this evening I've got Roy at the door and he's got trigs with him And he's absolutely filthy So Roy has asked if... uh, Triggs can join you in the bath tonight. I'm not going to say no to Roy, so in he comes. Jump in there, Triggs. Good boy. Brucey will scrub you down and maybe you can give Brucey a wee rub as well. Good man. Enjoy, Brucey.
0: Okay, Brucey. This week's story is by Roy Keane. On Thursday morning, I got a call from Tom Humphreys at about 7.45 and the Irish Times was about to print. The article appeared on Thursday morning. It expressed exactly what I felt. I believe people at home had a right to know the truth. We were told there was a team meeting at 7.30. I knew damn well what it was about. Tom's article. As we were finishing dinner, the hotel band started playing. Steve Finnan was sitting beside me. I asked him how his ankle was. On the mend, he said, but he might be struggling for the opening game against Cameroon. I was lucky, Roy, Steve said. I was walking when I put my foot in the pothole. If I'd been running, I'd have broken my ankle. What we'd been faced with out here was, we both agreed, unbelievable. All the players felt the same. They'd been talking about it all week. Come to think of it, Irish players have been talking like this forever. At 7.30, McCarthy arrived in the restaurant. The staff were with him. Okay, lads, we're off at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Get your bags packed and tagged. And while we're here, he went on, whoever's not happy with anything, I'd like them to say it to me. I knew what was coming. But I was cool. My conscience was clear. I had told him privately what I was unhappy with. As team captain, I'd said my piece the other day. No need to repeat it. I picked this silent, and if anybody's not happy, they should tell me now, he repeated. Keep cool, Roy. They're dangling the bait for you. Don't bite. The atmosphere was heavy with the sense that trouble was brewing. They all knew now what the meeting was about. He's going to try and sort me out. Publicly. Be the big man. The manager. I was calm. Roy... You don't seem to be happy with something. It was pathetic. Well, Mick, I said, why didn't you say that from the start? We've talked about this in private. Why aren't we having this conversation in private? Well, you've made it public, he said, whipping the Humphreys article from behind his back like Paul Daniels. What do you mean, made it public? This interview with the Times. Mick, do you not think I've seen the interview? Do you call the set man management? You're going against your teammates now, he went on. Look, I've seen the interview. I promised Tom last Sunday I'd do a piece with him. I spoke to him yesterday. I stand by everything I said. The interview's fine. You've gone against your teammates, he repeated. You never wanted to play for your country. You were supposed to go to Iran and you didn't. You faked an injury to get out of playing for your country. Oh, (laughs) he's on a roll now. You know that's not true, I responded. You spoke to my manager. You know I wasn't right for the Iran match in Dublin. You thanked me for coming to Dublin. You agreed the 2-0 was a good result. I was angry now. He was bending the truth. You call this man management? I went on. You were there. You know the truth. Mick, you're a liar. What was he doing this for? Suddenly I snapped. All the F-ups and bullshit I and every other Irish player had put up with for ten years flashed through my mind. Harry's challenge. The piss up in the US Cup. In Cyprus, Paul McGrath. Dennis Irwin proving himself. The duff hotels. The jokes about the Irish and English dressing rooms which ate into my soul. The cheese sandwiches in Holland. Most of all, the conversation in my house when this prat agreed with me and promised would do it right this time. And here he was, playing Billy Big Boss in front of people who knew the story, who'd been there, gone along with this farce. Walking on eggshells around me? Nah. Walking on eggshells around the truth. Taking the piss Out of the Irish people The fans were supposed to love And I'm the captain of this Biting my tongue Going along with all the bluffers Was this what I'd worked All my career for To come here And go along with this crap Sending coded messages To the fans Through the Irish Times My sin To hint Hint At the reality And now I was in the dock Captain Fantastic Counsel for the prosecution All of this raced through my head As I sat listening To the worst accusation of all that I had faked an injury. Nah, I'm not having that. Not from this imposter. McCarthy, running on the pitch after we got a draw in Portugal in the qualifiers and grabbing me. Just stand at me, Roy, for 15 seconds. Let the press get a photograph of the two of us together. It'll look great. I didn't rate you as a player. I don't rate you as a manager. And I don't rate you as a person. And you can stick your World Cup up your arse. I've got no respect for you. But if you don't respect me, I don't think you can play for me. And at that... I got up and left the room.
2: Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight, and don't let Gary Pallister bite or Triggs or Triggs either.
0: That was Roy Keane there in Brucey's bath, uh, describing the incident in Saipan. The gear didn't arrive. The pitch was an absolute shambles. Players were getting injured. Dan was Roy right to leave Saipan?
3: Look, uh, no, no, absolutely not. He wasn't. Um, it's a great shame. And you can at the time I was just devastated um, because he was one of the world's best midfielders. He was Irish. He would have been one of the star players at the World Cup. He could obviously we knew that him and McCarthy had a frosty relationship, but they got through the qualifying. And nobody worked as hard as as Roy Keane did to get Ireland to the World Cup. I know there's a collective within a team, but they wouldn't have qualified without him. That is that is a fact. Uh, he went toe to toe with the world's best, gave Ireland that push. He also scored goals in the qualifying campaign. In terms of the setup, just years of frustration. And Roy is an impulsive man, an impulsive character. He is a heart in the sleeve type of man when things come down to it, when, uh, when it goes to the crunch. It just sent him over the edge and he couldn't be brought back. And uh, even when the, you know they initially fell out, he was brought back round again. There was the whole episode with Colin Healy. Do we bring him in? Do we bring not bring him in? Obviously, that's pressure on McCarthy as well.
0: So, it was very strange as well, McCarthy, with that. He he basically called Colin Healy instantly. like oh, yeah. Almost like, no, I'm not even going to wait for this guy. Like,
3: I, I don't think Mick was, for whatever reason, he wasn't too fussed on having Roy about. Quickly called up Colin Healy, which ended up a wee bit of, it was an embarrassing situation then for, for everyone involved. But Keane was brought round, he stayed on for another few days, and then it was the, the newspaper article came out where Kane just spoke honestly about um about the setup. And the evidence was there. I would back I back Roy 100 percent on that. Players got injured, they were yeah. training on a terrible surface. Roy just he was just he was on the edge. He wasn't enjoying being away from his family as well. He just felt I'm away. And you know, the, the great line from Mick McCarthy in his press conference is that. I have sent him home, he says. So there is certainly mixed opinions on, did Keane leave? Was he sent home? My personal opinion is that he was sent home. He would have stayed, I think. I mean, he goes on RTE then and says, basically, if Mick rings me, like I'll fly back out. Colin Healy, it's it's not happening. They're a third player late. Keane was in the squad. Keane was in the squad the whole summer. He could have went back, but the call yeah. didn't come, so he wasn't going to he wasn't going to put himself out there in, in that
0: fashion um, he didn't want to be as desperate to say like please yeah. call me and let's make up but that's what he was sort of that's probably the reason why he did the interview yeah. you know, as well exactly. as trying to set the record straight Matchman the, the RT interviewer quite rightly went all Maude Flanders on Keane and said you know will somebody please think of the children here Roy you know there's hundreds of thousands if not millions of, of Irish children all over the world who you're their hero and you're, you've are you let them down
2: yeah well <laughs> I think everyone blames Roy Keane for this here, but there's a lot deeper issues between him and McCarthy. Um, I think the FAA have to hold their hands up. They're responsible for a lot. Those training facilities were was all the the gear and that. Roy Keane is an absolute leader, a hero, and it was sad to see him walk away, but I think at that time he had probably no option when he doesn't get his managers back in. But uh, I, I can just remember it on the TV breaking. Um, and you know, there was Roy Keane at home actually walking the dog you look back on the Republic of Ireland squad they recovered initially in the group stage but could you imagine if Keane was there for the last, an extra time against Spain yeah. he probably would have tucked them over the line it's sad looking back at it but I don't, I don't completely blame Keane for everything um, he stood for his values. Roy Keane's his own man.
0: Dan, what do you think of McCarthy's man management in this whole situation? Like calling the, the meeting, which Keane knew it was a trap, like, and he he, he, he rightly said, I fell for the trap, you know, it's particularly when he said, when McCarthy goaded him and said, you know, you faked an injury against uh, and didn't play in that Iran game. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back, really. What is McCarthy doing here? Like, this is the captain of the country, and he's calling this dinner meeting, whatever it is. He's got the article hidden behind his back. He
3: has a real lack of maturity. And Mick, obviously, a, a young manager at the time, to be fair, you know, it was only his second job, the Republic of Ireland job. Poor advice from his background team. I don't know how he thought this was going to go. It was only going to go one way. Maybe he wanted it to go south. Maybe he wanted it to go downhill.
0: Doesn't it say everything that the press conference was held immediately after that? Like, it was already set up?
3: Already set up. He knew. He knew he was going to grind... Keane's gears, in my opinion, and Roy can't hold his tongue, and that's not a bad thing. He sticks up for himself. You know, Roy Keane, people can say what they want, but you know, he doesn't need lessons in being Irish. Like, he is Irish. He's the captain of his country. He's the country's best player. He will stand up for himself. To accuse a man who had played through pain for years, who had suffered a career-engine injury, to accuse him of faking an injury, it's the biggest insult. You could give him apart from possibly insulting his, his family.
1: You, yeah. you
3: just do not go there. King had taken injections to play against Iran in the first leg, where when he was encouraged not to buy his club, he went against his club to play in that. And that is the biggest insult that he, he could have been given. And I think Mick McCarthy knew that and he knew how to play it in front of the players too. You know, it was a very young Ireland squad. And the senior players, were they were mixed teammates as well, so he would nobody backing him. I'm not going to say he didn't have any support, but he yeah. certainly had nobody backing him. I mean, he even has to get Manchester United to fly him home. I mean, that's how much of a, a farce the FAA were at the time.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I suppose on the flip side of that, Mush, what is Keane doing giving interviews to the press when they're out in Saipan anyway?
2: True, maybe King was just trying to make a point, you know, he's a... Very outspoken man, and he was just like, right. Well, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make a statement here. I'm gonna let loose, tell them what's really going on.
0: Dan, the other thing that really sort of grinds my gears about all of this, and maybe this could have been the thing that actually fixed everything, was every other member of the squad kept silent. Now I can understand when it's young players, but the likes of Quinn Staunton, they have gone through exactly the same thing behind the scenes. Have went, this is a disgrace.
3: They said nothing, Uh, and and it's very easy for them to say, oh, look, I just wanted to play at the World Cup. You're losing your best player here.
0: I know. Like, it's so narrow-minded, isn't it, when you think about it?
3: Really narrow-minded. There's a bit of selfishness involved. I think, in particular, I think Steve Staunton was a little bit out for himself as well. He would be be made captain. Neil Quinn, I think, maybe a little bit of shock with Neil Quinn. He's fairly articulate that he's a smart man. And then there was Alan Kelly in, in the backroom team. And as you say, I mean, Finnan and, and a few others who got injured, you know, they should, should have probably stood up and supported Keane as well. I think, I think the whole thing caught the squad off guard. The squad didn't even have time to compute what was going on. Maybe. It just happened so fast Like he was gone. He just had no backup, no backup at all, no support. The more I'm talking about it here, he was really hung out dry. It's a great shame, really. It's a shame for Mick McCarthy, who was sacked a few months later. It's a shame for Roy Keane, who missed out on a World Cup in his prime, despite playing in 1994. It's a shame for the FAI. It's a shame for the fans. There
1: was no winners here. Again, I think it's important. People look at if people look at the facts. People need the facts. The bottom line run about management, man management dealing with players. If a manager is going to step up in front of a group of players and staff and make, make accusations against any player whether it be me or Robbie or Duffer or whoever it was there's going to be trouble there, there is you're done about management and getting a group together and again I don't know how many games we played to qualify for the World Cup somebody might tell me in the audience or google it or whatever I think it might have been with the playoff games I think it was out of 12 or 14 I think it was how many 14 right I think I missed thanks Mick I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I missed one match. I think I did, somebody might put me, I think I missed one match, and then on the eve of the World Cup, there's a meeting with all the players. Don't forget the kit all That was all sorted out. i sick of repeating myself with all that stuff, that bit. And you're sitting with a group of players, you're flying on the next day, it's your official drink, and there's a meeting called in front of everybody, and there's accusations made against me about missing one game in the whole campaign. You know, what are you expecting? No, I, totally.
0: It's such a loss for you to give up on that World Cup. Do you, does any party ever think, oh, we should have played that World Cup and then just
1: got the well, hell out of there? Is a required. situation that I wish hadn't kind of panned out that way, of course. But again, I know it takes two to tango and I have to look at my own part, of course. But I just think, well, again, I honestly, but like the United stuff, what was I supposed to say? You know, I missed, I missed one game and the medical staff were involved and in making this accusation against me. In front me. But even if you again pulled me one to one. And this was on the EV the World Cup, it wasn't three months earlier or three months later. We're flying out tomorrow and you put in front of all the group. Please tell me whatever. There's people in there who run businesses. I'd
3: love to think, what
1: do you think was going to happen when you make accusations against, I suppose, a character like me? Would it be a senior player? Or a cap, Forget about the captaincy. I think if I was sitting there and mixed it up and made accusations against any of the other players, I'd be going, oh, where are you going with this? Yeah. So, yeah, no, I don't. that doesn't keep me awake. I think I was fortunate enough, again, I'd, I'd obviously played in the 94 World Cup. I've experienced the World Cup. I had a taste of it. And I, I, I kind of don't think the baggage from Saipan, I don't really carry around with me. Okay. I think other people should carry around with them, not me.
0: So now we're going to look at one of the games of the group stages. It involves the finalist Germany against the Republic of Ireland. And just an absolutely brilliant moment that we had to cover. Dan, you took a look at this. What happened between the Germans and Ireland? Oh, a superb group game
3: on the 5th of June 2002 at the Kashima Soccer Stadium refereed by David Beckham's mate, Kim Milton Nielsen. Germany would arrive with a 4-4-2, with Oliver Kahn goals, a back four of Metzeler, Linke, Frings and Ramelow, Christian Ziga, Bert Schneider, Dietmar Hamann and Michael Balak in midfield, and a front two of the two giants, Carsten Yanker reigns with, and Marislav Klosa. Republic of Ireland would arrive with a 4-4-1-1, and Shea given it in goals, a back four of Steve Finnan, Steve Saunton, Garry Breen and Ian Hart, a midfield four of Gory Kelly, Matt Holland, Mark Insela and Kevin Kilban. Damien Duff in the free roll behind Robbie Keane. Germany came into this game needing a victory to guarantee passage into the knockout stages. The Irish had to avoid defeat to ensure the qualification remained in their own hands going into the third match against Saudi Arabia. Having thrashed the Saudis 8-0, the Germans were brimming with confidence and it showed in the early exchanges, with Love closer, already on three goals for the tournament, looking particularly menacing. And it was no surprise when he took advantage of a lapse in the Irish defence to nod home and Michael a cross from out wide. The majority of the Irish fans who were behind Shay Gibbon's goal were stunned in the silence, one nil to the Germans after 20 minutes. At this stage, it looked like it was going to be a long day at the office for the Irish players and fans, with Germany heaping on the pressure. A few minutes after closest goal, the ball, however, fell to Matt Holland in similar circumstances to his goal in the opening game against Cameroon. Unfortunately for Roy Keane standing, this time the ball flashed gnarly wide. Despite the Irish pressure, the Germans maintained their narrow lead, leading into the halftime break. In the second half, Ireland continued to press for the elusive equaliser. Ten minutes into the second half, Damien Duff drew a fantastic save from Cannes. Later in the half, Matt Holland came close to securing the equaliser, but was denied by the woodwork. The Germans also had their moments in the second half, with Shea giving pull off a great save from Michael Ballack and Carsten Yanker rhymes with you-know-what. In the 74th minute, the Republic of Ireland manager Mick McCarthy withdrew the uncle and nephew combination of Gary Kelly and Ian Hart, and in their place he brought on the inexperienced Stephen Reid, and veteran striker Nail Creep Quinn. Damien Duff moved into a wider position to attack the German defence. As the match entered into injury time, it appeared that the efforts of the Irish would fall fruitless. Steve Finnan sent a long ball forward to Nail Quinn, who was just outside the German box. Quinn typically knotted down a pass, I'm going to call this a pass rather than a knock-on, into the path of onrushing Robbie Keane. Somehow Keane was able to wrap his right foot around the ball to get a shot away and squeeze the ball between Cairns' fingertips and the post. With just moments to spare, the Republic of Ireland had equalised and earned a credible draw with Germany. Both teams will go into their final game needing just a point to qualify and both would do it. But all in all, a fantastic day for the Irish. A wonderful equaliser from Robbie Keane. Who knew Gary Kelly was Ian Hart's uncle? I didn't until this day. And here we go. On to the Saudi Arabia game. And Damien Duff in fine form. A fantastic group game. Ireland won. Germany won.
0: Matchman, it was definitely a knock-on by Quinn. Like, There's no
2: way that that was a pass. I don't care if it's a pass or a knock-on. Robbie <laughs> Keane put it in the back of the net. It was in room three the history room in St. Joseph's. College under the, the guidance of Mr Burns known not Monty Burns and Mr Gibson God rest his soul and we just erupted tables everywhere posters of the famine ripped down it was just a great memory <laughs> 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 so you know watching the, watching the world cup in school and this is Probably one of the best World Cup moments definitely For me as a fan
0: We were the same Watched it in uh, Tommy Sheridan's English class called, God rest his soul Was it uh, the TV Was one of those big black ones That you just roll in? Yes Big square in, black
2: out. one Oh yeah No plasma TVs back then um, It was on wheels It's like something from Robot Wars In terms of this
0: game then um, Ireland giving as good as it got here Against the Germans? Without a doubt They
2: you know, Ireland had some talented players. They really went for it. Like D- Demon Duff, when they moved him out wide. Uh, Kilban as well too. But they actually had a lot of the possession. Germany didn't really look like they wanted to get a second goal. And Ireland had a lot of the ball in the second half. And they got the rewards deep in the injury teams. But is that the only goal that
0: Can conceded in the, it was in the tournament until, until the
2: final? The, yep.
0: That's just unbelievable, like at that level, yeah. isn't it? Uh, we've obviously touched on Keane here but there's another Keane and a, a young man in behind him by the name of Damien Duff the Duff man who were young and, and making a name for themselves here
3: oh superb uh, it was actually I think a really good uh, tackle move by McCarthy to free up free up his two best players just two banks of four behind them, two, two solid sets of units we had Duff in the free role and he, he had a brilliant World Cup he obviously going to to against Saudi Arabia and he ran right against Spain. He was excellent. It was a world-class performance. He was at Blackburn at the time, but he was getting great attention from the big clubs in England, Manchester United and Chelsea most notably. And Robbie, you know, he was at Leeds at the time. Wasn't playing every week. Was being rotated. But he was certainly gaining attention as well. And there's not too many better finishers at this World Cup than Robbie Keane. Right foot or left foot, Keane could finish.
2: Into the last few seconds here. The Germans still lead thanks to closer. Who else was it going to be? Kinsella has the ball. He lumps it up. Hit and Hope. Great Niall Quinn. He jumps. He must be at least 12 foot in the air. He flicks it on. Oh, Keane runs onto the box. And he nudges it in front of him. He voids a German saw doctor. Keane shoots goal! Oh my God. Keane has done it. Not Roy as he's at home walking trigs. But Robbie, Arlen players going mad. And men crying in the stands This is truly a World Cup moment Oliver Kahn is livid He is already an angry keeper The watering holes will be dry Tonight in Ireland Even Donthie will have fallen off his chair In the RTE studio There will be not much work done tomorrow in Ireland It's Germany 1 Republic of Ireland 1
0: Okay Mush so we've got a wee segment on USA Coming up and
2: I believe your mate Chip Is back Oh yes no better man to give us a bit of analysis on the USA, then my mucker and everyone's friend, top journal, football DNA, it's Chip, don't leave it! Hey guys, thanks for having me back for the big finale, man.
0: Oh, I can't believe we made it to World Cup 2002 because we absolutely sucked in 98. In 2002, the MLS was barely seven years old but it had already helped get American players exposure to a competitive league. Coach Bruce Arena had several options at his disposal. Aside from the core veterans like my boy, KC, he had many youngsters from the 99 Under 17 World Cup squad. Joining Clint Mateus and Cloudy Arena was London Dunovan and Demarcus Beasley. Although no one knew it at the time, this team was about to make history. True American heroes like Hulk Hogan or NSYNC. We entered the tournament having won just four World Cup Finals games in 72 years. Not bad, but not playoff material either. Due to the time difference, we played Portugal on ESPN2 at 4.55 a.m. Eastern Time on June the 5th. I can remember having to get my brother Dale to bitch slap me. I was so tired, man. Portugal, a team loaded with ringers like Luis Figo, were favorites to beat us and win the group, but we whipped their ass, 3-2, thanks to touchdowns from John O'Brien, an own goal by George Costa, and then Brian McBride, provided what would be the game-winning score. He sneaked in between two Nando's defenders, like the cat burglar Malloy, and he slammed home a diving header off a perfect cross from his former Milwaukee Rampage teammate, Tony Sané. The important thing was to come out quick, said McBride, adding, We needed to make sure and put them on their heels, and that's what we did. Correction, Brian, we put them on their high knees. The American Eagles played well despite some mixed results in the first conference group. On June 10, we tied with co-host South Korea 1-1. Four days later, we lost to Poland 3-1. No matter, we finished second in Group D and clinched a spot in the playoffs where we faced our close rivals, the Latino Heat, Mexico. Not even Speedy Gonzalez himself could have stopped the U.S. steam train. McBride's goal after just eight minutes and another from Do no Van helped us cruise to a 2-0 win. Andale, andale, iba, iba. We were catapulted straight into the quarters, baby. Mexico's coach at the time recalled, we usually beat them to lose was a big deal especially because it was a world cup game to me the rivalry between mexico and the usa has now started well if it's just started dip that in your salsa the american nation was now gripped soccer had caught the attention of everyone including spider-man aka toby Maguire. the united states and germany faced each other on june 21 we played the same 352 flying duck formation that defeated mexico But we were the clear underdogs, like Rocky Balboa going into his fight with Drago in Rocky IV. But in a tournament where surprise results had become the norm, we were feeling good that a win was possible. We dreamed of a big victory, like when we destroyed the Germans in World War II. On a day where we outshot the Germans 11-6, we could not score on Oliver Kahn. He was literally a wall. At the other end of the field, a Michael Ball header in the 39th minute was all the Germans needed to win the game 1-0. Controversy was also a big part of this matchup. We were the victims for once, people. In the second quarter, a strike bounced off Cannes and hit the left arm of defender Torsten Fringe, who was standing on the goal line. The ball nearly crossed the line before Cannes grabbed it. Scottish referee Hugh Dallas didn't whistle for an illegal It should have been a penalty kick as it was a clear handball. This isn't baseball or basketball guys. Come on. Goddamn, Scott's having too much bootleg liquor. (sighs) Sorry, I lost my cool there. I haven't had my fruity pebbles today yet. When Dallas did finally blow his whistle to end the game, the American players collapsed to the ground with the crowd chanting USA, USA, USA at the end of the match the players walked off the field with their heads held high. This time, they had advanced to the quarterfinals and showed the world they were no doormat, but rather a team that could get results at a major soccer competition. First the world, next, the universe. I'm Chip Levy. Back to you in the studio, Simon.
3: Matchman, I've asked you this a thousand times, but my me memory deserts me. Where, how and when... Did you
2: meet Chip Donnelly? Like me. I met him at a bus station. We were getting a bus to uh sorry, I was getting a, a bus to a scooter concert. I was on my own. A few of the lads had dropped out, and there came on this fella, wearing a one of those. You'd see these patriotic Americans wearing a the red, white, and blue shirt with the stars. Looked like he from Texas. This boy comes on, big cowboy hat and all, and there's me just with a cap, track tracksuit top on, and thinking, what are they? where is this boy going and then he sat down in front of me and he says do you want a tin and he says what's a tin man and I just got going from there you know and he thought "I says do you want a tin of harp he thought i was going to actually walk out the musical instrument harp but as uh, i got the no chip i did dodge him though at the scooter concert because i had enough on the, the bus journey up that's
3: brilliant mate a very logical explanation
2: My Mad Man of the Week is Cattuso, a little Italian who achieved so much as a player and played with calming influence such as Pirlo and Maldini. What could possibly be mad about this tiny man? His tenacity on the pitch has earned him the nickname Rhino, which is Italian for snarl. As the saying goes, it's not the size of the dog, it's the fight in the dog that counts. And certainly this was fuel for Cattuso. No matter who he played up against, he took no prisoners at times with his trademark aggression and reckless manner. At football, he always gave 100% on the pitch until provoked, he says. He never set out to hurt anybody. Who are you trying to kid, Cattuso? Headbutting, match fixing and Gaza shitting in his sock. All chapters in the Cattuso story. On his first day at Rangers, Gaza shit in his... Suck, Gattuso couldn't speak English, and who was enlisted as his translator? Yes, you guessed it, Gaza! Gaza was told by the coaching staff to tell the Italian to calm down. However, in true Gaza's style, he informed Gattuso he needed to keep up the intensity if he wanted to play regularly. Gascoigne had taken him suit shopping on one of the first days at the club, and brought him to a tailor, and informed Gattuso that Rangers had a partnership with this suit shop. Gatuso was horrified by some of the tartan suits that were on offer, but was even more horrified when Gaza told him that there was no partnership with the tailor and Gattuso would have to pay the £10,000 bill. Gattuso's face, which is permanently pissed off, dropped. But Gaza, being the top bloke that he was, paid the bill. His no-nonsense style went hand in glove with the rough and tumble of Scottish football, as he was a regular for Walter Smith. This was shown in two old firms he played twice getting booked. A large part of Cattuso's free time in Glasgow was spent going to the Italian restaurant Mario Romino, whose daughter, Monica, he would later marry, worked there. Similarities in appearance to Mel Gibson's portrayal of William Wallace quickly gave rise to the nickname Braveheart. But just as Cattuso was looking freedom from playing right back under Dick Advocate, he was shipped back to Italy. A great time at SC Milan for Cattuso, he didn't half piss people off especially opposition. He only notched up 78 yellow cards and two red cards in 13 years at SA Milan, which I find very strange. Either way, he was very cute about his antics or the more dodgy dealings of referees in Serie A. Gattuso seemed to get really pissed off, especially in the Champions League, where he was sent off in the second half of injury time after slapping Ajax striker Slatan Imerhevich in the face with the back of his hand. His temper caused him further problems at the final whistle of Milan's 3-2 defeat to Schalke in the Champions League as Cattuso was seen seeking out Christian Poulsen, a Liverpool legend. And then Milan's Champions League tie against Tottenham Hotspur. Cattuso pushed Spurs coach Joe Jordan away by the throat during an incident on the sideline. Jordan, a hardy nut to himself, was seen exchanging words with Cattuso. Cattuso! Headbutting him! After another exchange of words. Gatuso was then suspended for five Champions League matches. He was suspended at two international tournaments after picking up two yellow cards in two games. Control yourself, Gatuso. After he won the 2006 World Cup final, which had the Mad Zidane versus Matarazzi bout, he was seen running around the pitch celebrating in his underwear. UEFA had to tell him to put some freaking clothes on. Gattuso had a touch of double vision in a game where he ran into Nesta, claiming he didn't see him and he could see four slattens on the pitch who now was his teammate after being slapped a few years earlier by Cattuso. His name was dragged into an investigation about a betting ring in the 2010-11 season. He dramatically promised to kill himself if found guilty. Despite Cattuso being a rat on the pitch, he still has an honour list, which includes 468 appearances for AC Milan, where he's in their Hall of Fame. He won two Serie A titles, two Copper Italias, two Champions Leagues, 73 caps for his country, where he notched one goal against England and won the World Cup. And life after football, Gattuso opened a fish shop in his hometown. And word has it, he personally batters each fish. He now has entered the world of management. And by God, help them players. My man, man of the week is Gattuso. No love lost between these old foes. Skull sees a candle in the wing. He pings it to Rocket Man Owen into the box, takes a touch checks it past pochettino pochettino pokemon postman Pat, penalty oh and it's the deck under pochettino's challenge owen may have fell over Poches rapunzel her it's beckham the skipper steadies himself he shuts the newspaper headlines out of his mind he steps up straight down the middle england lead beckham celebrates with his fellow three lions take that english tabloids take that certain fans who hurled abuse at me four years ago Take that Argentina, take that Maradona for eighty-six, and take that Gary Barlow. It's England one, Argentina nil. It is against his walls. This week's balls against the wall
3: quiz is sponsored by the ball that Ume Devalla viciously struck Ravaldo with during Turkey's group game against Brazil. This ball was stolen by mad Turkish goalkeeper Rustu Rakbar, who now does keepy uppies with it every day in his front garden.
0: Oh, what a ball! Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz, the quiz right I pit Dan against Mosh to see who has the best football knowledge. It's 6-4 to Dan going into this World Cup special. Lads, before we do anything, we are honoured to have a man who didn't go to the World Cup, but he doesn't care. It's Ua Cantona, he's
2: back. Well, Eric, did you get up at the early hours of the morning to watch some of these World Cup games? Only accidents, crimes,
3: walls will still kill us. But, unfortunately,
2: crimes and wars will multiply. I love football. Thank you. Ah, good stuff. Good stuff. Good to hear, Eric.
0: Lads, we need your player buzzers. And this week, it is any player who played at World Cup 2002. Dan, who are you going for? Cafu! Matchman, who have you went with? Neuvel! This week, we are playing for the number two in the charts right at the end of June, so middle of the World Cup. And that was the logical song by Thomas Scooter, the producer, Kushak. Oh,
3: what a tune. Gonna need this, gonna need this. It's a thumper.
0: You will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Question one Who was voted best young player at World Cup 2015? No, hello. Mush.
2: Landon Donovan.
0: Landon Donovan is correct. Name any of the three spherics, the official World Cup mascots.
2: (laughs) Caffu. Yes,
0: Dan. Miyagi.
3: I want a clue.
0: No, (laughs) Miyagi is not one of them. Uh, Matchman. Mr. Sparkle. (laughs) (laughs) Surely that's two out of the three. I might just give you a point. I'm going to give you a point each for those answers. (laughs) they're They're not the right answers. It was either Atto, Kaz or Nick Who wore the number 15 for Brazil? Cafu Yes, Dan Cleberson. He did What a shout, (laughs) Dan (laughs) Correct. Number 15, the age of his wife Yeah, (laughs) that's also true (laughs) Who scored Denmark's second in their 2-0 win over France? Cafu Yes, Dan Eberson. Incorrect Mush John Dahl Tomlinson is correct. Oh, a fine striker. Which ex Premier League manager played at the back for Argentina? Cafu. Oh, yes, Dan. Pochettino. Pochettino and his Rapunzel hairdo were at the yeah, back. A really spursy performance against England from him. <laughs> <laughs> How many points did France have by the end of the group stage?
2: Novalu.
0: That was mush. Day one. One oh. is correct. Yeah, unbelievable.
3: Her tournament.
0: Who did Turkey beat in the last 16? Kafu. Yes, Dan. Ah,
3: oh, God. Oh, pass. I went blank. Goodness me, I had it. Matchman.
0: Japan. Japan is correct. Who wore the number two shirt for England? Kafu. Yes, Dan.
3: Danny Mills. He did. Oh! <laughs> it doesn't
2: sound right. <laughs> Does it doesn't. <know? laughs>
0: Who managed Germany at the tournament? Neuvel. Yes, Mosh. Rudy Voller. Rudy Voller did. Who was Germany's sub-goalkeeper? Neuvel. Uh, yes, Mosh. Angry Jens Lehmann? It was Angry oh. Jens Lehmann. Ronaldo won the Golden Boot, but how many goals did he score? Cafu. Yes, Dan? Eight. Eight is correct. Oh. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Okay, lads. We are going over to Eric with the scores. What are the scores, Eric? Daniel. Cease. Go Six. Oh, it's a draw, lads. It's oh, a draw. I thought
2: that was close, all right.
0: It's six all, so we're going to have a little decider here. Oh, my oh. God knows what you have. The decider is, we are looking for, lads, any player who was named in the 23 for the France World Cup squad for 2002. Dan, it is over to you first.
3: Fabian Portes.
0: Barthez is correct. Julien Ri Thierry is correct. Frank Leboeuf, it's correct. He shouldn't have been there, but it's correct. Saggy
2: Willie Willie Sagno,
0: Willie Sagno is correct. Lizarazu Lizarazu is correct. Chiram Chiram is in there. Desaye Marcel He's... is also in there. Jork AF. you are going with Yuri A. F, are you. Mm-hmm. He wore the number six. Uh, Vincent Candelà. Can't believe you just went with that down, but yes, he is in there.
2: Head by C say
0: unbelievably, he is in there.
2: I knew he was there. The
3: anelga sitting at home. David Trezeguet.
0: David or David for those
2: French David, speakers David. is in there. Tweety Bird, Mikhail Silvestre.
0: Ooh, good shout. Mikael is there. Patrick Vieira. Paddy V was there.
3: Claude Magalili.
0: Claude Magalili. Still at Madrid at this stage, I think. And he was there, number Z- seven. Zinedine Zidane. Zizu was injured, but he was there.
2: He had a stint at Fulham, your boy Christian Val at the back.
0: <laughs> what a shout, Mosh. Christian Val was in there, yeah. The ponytail wonder,
3: Emmanuel, named after a famous film, Petit. Emmanuel Petit is
0: correct, Dan. Wiltord? Oh. Sylvain yeah. Wiltord is correct.
2: Ugh. This is getting sticky. This is a stick. I manage that now. I'm bound to be down to the bones. Uh,
0: 18, years, of got. Oh,
1: jeez.
2: I'm going to go with Christophe Dugari.
0: That waster was in there,
2: yeah.
1: <coughs> oh. <laughs>
2: I'm going to go with the keeper. Okay. And I think he was in the French squad for a long time. Coupé. Gregory Coupé was
0: in there.
1: Yeah.
2: Johan Miku. Yes, you
0: want Miku is correct. I'm going to go with the other keeper, I think. Ram. How are we spelling that, or
2: R-A-M-E.
0: Yes, we'll give you Ram or Rame. Rame. That's 22, so Dan, it's back to you for the last man.
3: Torn between a couple, there's a couple of retro men. One
0: at Parma, one at, maybe at Middlesbrough then, I don't know. I can't believe you've got that. That is correct. Oh, what a show. Well done, lads. You've Named all twenty-three. I'm not going to give us another one. I just think we need to say fair play. Is have named the twenty-three <laughs> between us. Is you can have a copy each of the logical song. All right. Oh,
2: that's oh, uh, thank you, Steve. Awesome. Steve. That, that means a lot.
3: Maverick of the Week is the wonderful Raúl. Yes, the Spanish striker who stole the hearts of millions of football fans around the world. His early career began at San Cristobal de Los Angeles. However, he was quickly spotted and signed by Atletico Madrid where he would help them win a national youth title. Jesús Gil, the president of of Atletico Madrid, would then make the crazy decision to close the Atletico Youth Academy to cut costs. Madness, in my opinion, and this would leave a young Raúl with only one place to go. The mighty Real Madrid, where he helped the Real Madrid youth team win back-to-back international Dallas Cups. He quickly broke into the first team in 1994-95 season as a 17-year-old and formed a strike partnership with Chilean hitman Ivan Zamorano. And Raúl would hit nine goals in 28 games in his first season. Not bad for a rookie year at the Bernabeu. Not to mention, he also added his very first La Liga title. Raúl improved his goal tally in 1996, hitting 26 goals in all competitions and would add another La Liga in 1996-97 under the disciplinarian and postman pat-lookalike Fabio Capello with the Spaniard banging in 22 goals despite what people perceived as a negative and defensive Real Madrid team. We all know however that Madrid's main objective is winning the Champions League and Raúl helped them achieve this in 1997-1998 as they beat the wonderful Juventus 1-0 in the final, where Raúl played alongside Christian Carembu, Mucci Panucci, Hierro, Rodondo, Roberto Carlos, Mijatovic, Savio, Seedorf, Morientes and Captain Sanchez. It is the 1999-2000 season that truly seen Raúl become a world-class player, ever, as he tormented every team he came up against hitting 29 goals and adding assist after assist to his game. He was given a free role by Real Madrid, playing behind Fernando Morientes and Nicolás Anelka, and he would torment the fruity combination of Henningberg and Yampstam at Old Trafford, as well as help Madrid thump Valencia 3-0 in the final, and scoring a wonderful winning goal where he ran from the halfway line and sandied the goalkeeper. Raúl seen many changes over the years at Madrid, no more so than the Galactico era. Would seeing him link up with Zinedine Zidane, Luis Figo, David Beckham and Ronaldo. Raúl would remain the constant at Madrid along with Guti. Such was his quality and leadership and although having a quiet demeanour, he was the main man behind the scenes and completely ran the dressing room. He would win titles in 2003 and 2007 in between some Barcelona dominance, striking up an excellent partnership with Ruud van Nistelrooy between 2006 and 2008. Raúl's last game and indeed touch for Real Madrid was away to Real Zaragoza, the stadium where, in fact, he made his debut and he poked home after an assist from Cristiano Ronaldo, which I feel is very fitting. Raúl surprisingly chose Schalke in Germany after leaving Madrid in 2010 and helped them to the Champions League semi-finals, beating defending champions and travel winners into Milan on the way. Raúl decided to hit the Middle East after this and spent two years with al Sadd in Qatar before retiring at the reformed and Eric Cantona guided New York Cosmos in 2014. Raúl, while having an excellent record at international level, was unfortunate to just miss out on the golden generation of Spain. And alongside many world-class players, he underachieved at major tournaments, where he was able to play in a Spain team guided by Guardiola, Nadal, Morientes, Joaquin, Baraja, Mendieta, Abelda, Luis Enrique, Sergi Salgado, Piol, Xavi, Ico Casillas, just to name a few. He did, however, play at five major tournaments, France 98, Euro 2000, 2002 World Cup, Euro 2004 and Germany 2006, winning over 100 caps. His honours read as follows. For club, 942 games, 404 goals. For his country, 102 caps and 44 goals. He won six La Ligas, three Champions Leagues, one Super Cup, two World Club Championships, four Super cups whatever they are. He was world top scorer in 1999. He won a German Cup, a German Super Cup, one Qatar Stars League and one Soccer Bowl with the Cosmos. He won five La Liga's best players. He was Ballon d'Or runner-up in 2001 and he is a member of the elusive FIFA 100. Raúl is now currently manager of the Real Madrid youth team and who's to say he won't go on to manage a senior outfit in years to come? In conclusion, Raúl is simply a magnificent and world-class player with wonderful technique and temperament, a player in his prime who would have walked into any team on the planet. This week's Maverick of the Week
0: is Raúl. He scored quite a few goals in the group stages of this tournament, World Cup 2002, but did did he get injured then?
3: He picked up a slight knock, all right, uh, and and Spain, Spain will go on to highlight this as their... Main problem, you know, they didn't have um, a replacement, a suitable replacement for him. He was world class. And at this point, he was flying. He was in his pump, you know, yeah. he just won the Champions League. And so when you lose a player, it kind of knocks teammates' confidence a little bit, you know, oh, we don't know about who. Start overthinking things. And I think that Spain team struggled with that type of thing. They really struggled with the pressure. So when, the, when you lose one of your best players, then, oh, we're in trouble now.
0: match of the week bloody hell yes welcome to match of the week it's all over between the three Lions England and the Samba Boys Brazil but don't worry the match man is there standing by match man what has happened in the quarter final
2: of the World Cup Yes, it's all over here! And it's all over for England! It's not coming home! Thanks to goals from Rivaldo deep in first half-injury time and a Ronaldinho free-kick which caught Dave Siemens, Tash and Mop of Her out. Michael, stating the obvious Owen, had gave England the lead and England played the last 30 minutes with an extra man as Boggs Bunny Ronaldinho saw red. But England, and no, no, on no, no, and no, didn't have the minerals! It was as you were once again for England as Fan Horney Goran and Ericsson decided to stick with the same 11 that disposed of no bit of bacon Denmark easily in the last 16. While Brazil have made one change, Cleverson in after he was able to get a babysitter for his other half and out goes little Janinho. Word has it his agent is on the phone to Borough chairman Steve Gibson about bringing the little gem back to the club for the 45th time. If there's anything guaranteed to send you back to sleep after you've got up for a football match at half seven in the morning, then it's the National Anthem's. I need at least a pint of tea in me first. Scolese, for one, doesn't look too chuffed. David Beckham and Cafu, what a right-hand say That would be in a 4-4-2. The two captains go up for the coin toss and exchange their country's treasure chest maps. England kicked off in their white shirts with the three lions on their chest. Brazil in blue, and I'm not sure why they are not wearing their samba yellow. It doesn't even clash with white, but maybe the big swoosh neck made them wear it. A corner for England within the first 15 seconds after a strong run from girls allowed coal. The England fans roaring their side on rather than roaring at innocent people on the streets. Brazil at the first chance of the game, master of the universe, Rivaldo, with a pop shot from a wishful 30 yards out. And wide, no trouble for Seaman. Scholes was about three minutes late on Ronaldinho. They don't call in the ginger ninja for no reason. Brazil are awarded a free kick. They funny about with a ridiculous three-touch setup, which nearly goes pear shaped But a livid Roberto Carlos steams in, And his shot is deflected for a corner, which was cleared by Solman Campbell. Solman was England's best player as he snuffed out numerous attacks early on. Lucio tried some ridiculous attempt at a backheel clearance. It spanked off his shin and Owen picked the ball up. He chips the ball cleanly over the advancing Marcos and into the net. England lead Brazil. A scare for England as Beckham is carried off in a stretcher. Maybe he is just wanting some attention because he ran back on soon after. A junior, no, not Danny DeVito, is out-jumped and out-muscled by Big Heskey. Brazil had plenty of the ball at this stage, but they couldn't find a way past a packed England defence. But just as England were about to see this half out, Bugs Bunny Ronaldinho set off on one of his trademark dribbles. Beckham Scholes tried to hack him down, but both failed, not like Scholes to miss a challenge. Ronaldinho still travelling with the ball. Buggs then found Skeletor Rivaldo in the box, whose first-time finish past sex symbol Seaman gives Brazil an equaliser deepened out of time. Why didn't England just hack Ronaldinho down and take one for the team? Half time, one-all. No changes made in the second half. It started with Cleverson, who had to ring the babysitter at half time, pulling girls-allowed Cole out of position a few times. Schools give away a free kick. England's ninth foul of the day, and I think the Nugget has seven of them. The free was on the right, 35 yards out. Boggs, Ronaldinho sends in a high ball which sails over the wandering Seaman's midlife crisis head and into the corner of the net. Maybe his ponytail flapped in his eyes, not totally sure if Ronaldinho meant it. Did he? I don't think he did, but it's some free kick. Question marks over Seaman, not just his tash and ponytail, but his position for the free kick. He completely mistimed the flight of the ball and has been lobbed. And Dave, standing a few yards away from his goal line, flashbacks for Seaman when he was lobbed from the halfway line by Naeem. Brazil League 2-1. And what a start to the second half of the Samba boys. Stan Horny, Gore and Erickson takes off Sinclair. No, not the OG. King Frank but his nephew Trevor and he brings on Dyer, a very skillful talent when he's not injured listeners. Then there was hope for England, Ronaldinho was sent off, he was a bit late on shiny nut mills and he lands on mills with his stud showing. In the follow through from where the ref stood it looks like he then elbows mills as he falls, there was no contact, a harsh red maybe from the Mexican ref, Ramos Riso, that's a great cage fighter name. Beckham, then tried to lead his team back from the brink by taking a dive in the Brazilian box. A 5.6 rating for David. backs could have stayed on his feet and took a pop at goal. Brazil shut up shop. Never thought I'd say that. Or 9 Ronaldo was off and in comes Ed Milsson. and then goes down again in the Brazil box. David trying his best to win a pen. Owen's number was up and off he trotted and on came Fasale. A strange move taking off your best finisher, but horny Sven knows best. Girls allowed, coal is off, and on comes, Old oh, city Teddy, Teddy Sven is going for it. The last 10 minutes seen the 10 men of Brazil pick the three lions off on the break, and only for great tackles, first from Slaphead Mills, then Rio, I forgot my drugs test, Ferdinand. Brazil played the clock and took the ball for a samba round the corner flags, and in injury time, it's now or never for England, with a corner, Solman and backside butt climb in the center. It hits Rivaldo, bounces back on the butt and goes out for a goal kick. Rio and Solman up for the last attack. But Lucio makes up for his error earlier on by winning the header and hitting the deck like he's been snipered and winning a free kick. The Mexican cage fighter's full-time whistle sounded. The midlife seaman is in tears. England didn't look good in the second half. A strangely subdued performance against ten men. Brazil deserved the result and will now meet either Senegal or Turkey in the semis. It's finished here. Brazil two. England one.
0: What happened to England here? You know, that's such a promising start. Did they just wilter in the heat or was it they're just they're just not good enough?
3: Oh, there was a few players that wilted in the heat for sure. And notably, uh, the two gingers in the middle of the park, Boughton Scholes, who were absolutely knackered. Beckham as well looked quite fatigued in this game. And Owen was carrying a slight knock. As well as that, a feel they were found out squad-wise. And Swain didn't make changes till later on because he didn't know what changes to make. He didn't have the options that he should have had. And, yeah, I just think uh, overall England were were found out against a very good Brazil team who looked as comfortable with 10 men as they did 11.
0: Do you think those players were there for Sven? He just didn't pick them?
3: Yeah, I believe, uh, well, we've already discussed McManaman. Yeah. I also feel that outside Michael Owen, Andy Cole was the best striker Oh, like a channel runner, like Owen and Cole wasn't brought. He plucked for uh, Darius Vassell instead of him, which is bizarre when you look back. Again, Cole was part of the the last qualifying match. He just didn't didn't pick the right squad really, and you can see that when they go two one down against ten men, you've got literally nothing to lose. The worst that can happen here is you're gonna go out of the World Cup didn't have the minerals as the matchman says. And I think he brought on Robbie Fowler late on, but too little too late. And Brazil deservedly went through. Their system didn't change, you know, when they went a man down. They just played with the the, the two up. Yeah. You know, it didn't really and you Instead know a two, you Ronaldo, and Ronaldo like, so you're all right.
0: Yeah. Dan, you've got a a bit of a theory about Beckham cowering out of a tackle here in this game.
3: Yes, the evidence is there on, on Beck's. Um, it's close to half time when Ravaldo equalizes, and it's much talked about, or was much talked about within the English media that Beckham jumped out of a tackle on the halfway line. Now I know, of course, there's another phase of play here, but if he goes into that tackle, uh, the ball goes out of play, and it's one-nil England at half time. These small things, yeah, look back on, and I'm sure Beckham would never admit to jumping out of a tackle because he was, he wasn't afraid of a tackle for sure but he might have just been protecting the wee, the wee foot there a little bit. Do we met a Definitely think so. And he was struggling. Uh, it might have been a game too too much for, for him at that time after his, after his injury and rushing back. They had a heavy group stage as well, England. I do feel Swain didn't manage the squad in the way that he should have.
2: The young Joe with the cross. Oh, ah, yes! And it's the man who missed the penalty who scores the winner! What a story! And Chung has put Korea into the quarterfinals. They have matched North Korea, who were the first side from
3: Asia to reach the quarterfinals. The Italians are out. Maldini cannot
1: believe
0: it. Matchman, South Korea and Japan were obviously the hosts for this brilliant World Cup tournament that we've been reviewing so far. And the hosts in general do quite well. You know, France had won it four years previously. The US did quite well in 94. But how did the two Asian sides, Japan and South Korea, fare?
2: Yes, what a World Cup we were treated to out in Japan and South Korea. Yes, we had to watch most games in the morning time, sinking pints of tea rather than pints of beer or the black stuff. But the host delivered a great World Cup and they also fared very credible as both hosts won their respective groups. Japan finally bowing out at the last 16 stage while South Korea beat Portugal, Italy and Spain on a controversial quest to the semi-final stage. I'll touch on that in a moment. Let me take you back to where the controversy started. South Korea and Japan were selected as hosts by FIFA in 1996. Initially South Korea Japan and Mexico presented three rival bids. Mexico were a long shot. Japan and South Korea were finally faced with the choice of having no World Cup or a shared World Cup and they reluctantly chose to go along with co-hosting. FIFA was also interested in staging some matches in North Korea but it was ruled out. Group 8 saw co-host Japan under the leadership of Felipe Trojier, a man who before took the Japan job, managed ivory coast, Nigeria and South Africa. And even the Kaiser Chiefs, well, he protected a riot. Japan scored off against Belgium, Russia, and Tunisia. Japan earned their first World Cup points in a 2-2 draw against Belgium. And Japan will get their first ever World Cup victory a few days later in Yokohama, defeating Russia 1-0 through a second half goal by Imamoto, the ex Arsenal and Fallen player. And they would finish up their group with a 2-0 win over Tunisia, one of the goals scored by Nakata, a familiar name in the early noughties in Serie A, and even had a spell on at Bolton under Big Sam. They were given a favourable group, but they topped it with seven points. But the journey ended in the last 16, as Turkey, with Bashturk pulling the strings, beat Japan 1-0, as they couldn't find a way past the war paint wearing to in the Turkish goes Still a very respectful tournament where they got further than Argentina, France, Portugal and even my beloved Croatia. Now then, South Korea. Group D saw them drawn alongside Poland, USA and Portugal. And South Korea started the group playing under the guidance of crazy Dutch coach Gus Hinnink, playing a high press and his players were full of beans as they never bloody stopped. Just look at Park Ji-sung, he's a hungry little fighter. He's fighting for a sandwich. Cheered on by the home support against Poland, they earned their first World Cup victory after the 15th time of trying. They won 2-0 thanks to goals from Hong and Young Sang Chal, beating Jersey Dudek twice. In their final group game, South Korea eliminated Portugal thanks to a lovely Park Ji-Sung effort where he chess-controlled across, dinked the ball past Sergio Conceição, sao and volleyed through the legs of the Portuguese keeper. The game finished 1-0 to South Korea, but there was question marks over Portugal's two players that were sent off. Joe Pinto, midway through the first half, showing a soft red, and Beto, giving two yellows, again soft. However, they topped the group and advanced beyond the first round for the first time ever with seven points. South Korea's last 16 tie against a well-stacked Italy side probably saw one of the most controversial matches of World Cup history mainly down to Ecuador referee Byron Moreno. It only took three minutes for the controversy to start. South Korea were awarded a penalty after Sol ki hyung went down in the box. As a result of some kind of contact, bemused Pinucci, Panucci, found the Great of the resulting penalty. Some sort of justice for the Italians. Then there was three separate instances where players throwing elbows. First up, big Christian Vieri, all elbows, no booking. Then Totty followed suit with an elbow. Toddy was booked, did his reputation sway Byron, brandishing a slice of cheddar. This would prove fatal later on. Then Kim tae Young chucked an angry limb at Alessandro Delboy, Piero's face inside the penalty box. Delboy didn't hit the deck. If he did, I don't think the ref would have done anything. In extra time, Toddy was sent off for what seemed quite certain was a dive in the box. Was it a dive? But replay showed Song Chung Gu took out Tutty's standing leg, causing the number 10 to fall over. Then Tomasi had a goal chalked off as he was deemed offside by a hers width. Then a golden goal by Hyung Wan, who had earlier missed a penalty. So, on end of this massive game for match winner Huang, he had his contract terminated by Italian club Perugia after the World Cup. Referee Byron Moreno, a man who was suspended for match fixing by the Ecuadorian FA later in 2002, and in 2010 he was caught smuggling six kilos of heroin through JFK Airport in his pants. The game resulted in 400,000 complaints. South Korea then went on to play Spain in the quarterfinals which featured two goals controversially disallowed for the Spaniards, which Ivan Higuera referred to as a robbery and led to the Spanish press brandishing the officials' thieves of dreams, though FIFA dismissed this and went down as human error. South Korea won the game on the lottery of penalties, but their dream ended in the semi-final, as the Germans, with no suspect refereeing calls, would stop them.
0: Dan, does it surprise you that the referee who took charge of this Italy game ends up getting banned for mat- match-fixing in Ecuador, and then subsequently years later is arrested with six kilos of heroin down his underpants in JFK Airport.
3: It does not surprise me. The biggest surprise here is that he wasn't arrested for carrying six kilos of set photographs. <laughs> That's what I think.
0: Now, let's not take away from South Korea because they've, oh. played, they've played some great stuff, right? So before we we'll yeah. sort of delve into the conspiracy side of it, let's talk a wee bit about South Korea um and Gus hitting one of your Dutch lovers. How did he set them up? And how did they manage to get so far in the tournament?
3: He set them up in a very attacking style, an aggressive style for you know a, a team you know that, that didn't have big physical players, but what he, he set up was a 3-4-3 with a really, really high intensity press. That was the system he used. I was a, he, he decided, look, I don't have physical players, I don't have, you know, you know, they weren't even that tall at the back, but what I do have. Is very fit players very technical players team runners a couple of players and really real skill about them like Ji Sung who he would, he would later take the uh, PSV Eindhoven, South Korea in a World Cup semi-final you know best of luck to them and um, they were they were unlucky in their semi-final as well you say
0: best of luck there but if you were that Italian side would you feel a little bit hard done by?
3: oh it would be absolutely fuming if it was uh, certainly the Italians I think Spain just performed poorly in the quarterfinals. I know the two goals disallowed, but they didn't really play well in the day. Italy, Italy did play well. Italy were robbed, really. Um, there's no point saying it otherwise. You know, I've, I've watched the documentary piece on it, I've watched the highlights of the match, I've read various articles, and it just, they were. I know it's funny saying
0: Italy were robbed, but they really were. Like The two major ones are Totti gets sent off when he's for diving when he clearly is, there's contact. Mm-hmm. And the second one is Tomasi is clearly onside and scores mm-hmm. and the goal is disallowed. Why, why people think it's a conspiracy, this is the first World Cup that's held in Asia.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: It's the first World Cup between two host nations. The conspiracy is that FIFA wanted to grow the game more in Asia. And the way to do that was to get Japan out of the group and to get South Korea as far as possible. What do you make of that?
2: Oh, I- Probably can't believe it. <laughs> no, not we don't know.
0: Well, yes. Dan, what's your view? Is it a, is it a FIFA conspiracy, or was it just really bad refereeing decisions that seem to go Korea's way?
3: Well, there's two sides of it. I, I like to believe in the conspiracies, so I'm going to stick <laughs> yeah. with that. But overall, yes. overall, as well, the trouble sometimes with World Cups is with each nation having representatives in the officiating. Is that you will get very poor referees? No, mm-hmm. so, he uh, probably had no business referee in that game. Referee the caliber of the players on show. Referee a knockout fixture at uh, the World Cup. Gilberto Silva to
1: Ronaldo. Ronaldo for Brazil. Oh,
3: what do you say about that? Extraordinary. Forty nine. A hero, and Ronaldo is here. His sixth goal in the tournament, and even Risto could do
0: nothing about that. Okay, lads, so now we move on to the World Cup final. A final that, in my opinion, was only ever about one man. In Sayatama during the summer of 2002, a busload of Japanese commuters on their way home from work found themselves suddenly overwhelmed by a gang of exuberant Brazilians who jumped aboard armed with ukuleles, drums and an outpouring of joyous song. The centrepiece of this bouncing crew was a huge cheerful man in a homemade drag costume. His spectacularly garish makeup was smudged in all the elated excitement, his wig was all over the shop, his fake cleavage hiked at a very, very odd angle. He was dressed as Ronaldo's nurse. He had scrawled the words over his outfit in case anybody needed clarification about his first outing in drag. Ronaldo's nurse explained that he felt obliged to ensure the nation's great hope will be just fine. Anything to bring luck and protection to a mesmerising yet vulnerable talent was worth trying. The bus made its raucous way back into the town at the end of Brazil's victorious World Cup semi-final against Turkey. Ronaldo was the match winner, dominant throughout the game, and the final whistle inspired fans behind the goal to hoist huge white letters to spell out his name Hollywood-style. This was a sentimental story that demanded the works to take Brazil into the final to grab another shot to give himself and his country the chance to make some kind of peace after the shattering drama of France 98 was everything the nightmare is over Ronaldo said well nearly just one more hurdle to go as if four years of questions conspiracy theories inquiries and doubts were not enough Ronaldo went on to rupture the cruciate ligament in his right knee before the World Cup 2002 he missed the qualification campaign as he rehabilitated that explains why ronaldo's nurse on the bus felt such a strong sense of duty to send protective and positive vibes ronaldo's capacity to return to peak form and to deal with the attention remained delicate subjects slightly heavier than before with a monkish haircut and carrying all that baggage and attention he set about his business at world cup 2002 racking up goals six of them before the final. Here is what the great man had to say himself about that semi-final goal and how he felt going into the final. I had a small muscular injury in my right thigh and that's probably the reason why I scored the winning goal with the toe poke. I was in pain and didn't feel my muscles could cope with me hitting the ball hard with the laces or the inside of my foot. When you do a toe poke the power comes more from the hips so I could spur my thigh a little by kicking the ball in this way. This kind of technique is used in futsal, which I played a lot during my childhood. In the moments after the final whistle, when we'd secured our spot in the final, I felt a mixture of joy and relief. But soon after, I was hit by a feeling of insecurity because of everything that had happened in the hours before the final four years earlier. Suddenly, everything that happened in that hotel room in France came flooding back. On that occasion, I decided to get some rest after our team lunch. The last thing I remember is getting into bed. That's when I suffered the convulsions that ended up affecting pretty much every member of the team before the France game. This time around, because of those bad memories, I was actually afraid of going to sleep after our team lunch on the day of the final. I purposely avoided it and didn't get any rest at all. I tried to find some of my teammates to talk to, but everyone was in the habit of getting some sleep after lunch, especially before a big game. Eventually, I discovered that our substitute goalkeeper, Dida, was awake. And we ended up chatting for an hour or so. He was really kind to me. He distracted me because he knew every time I thought back to the '98 final, I would remember the convulsions. And the idea of that happening again was my biggest fear. The final pitched Brazil against Germany. It was an odd quirk that the two most successful nations in the competition's history at that point, Brazil had four wins, the Germany's three, had never met before at a World Cup. Here they were, eyeball to eyeball in the final. The thrills of the three R's versus the defiance of Oliver Kahn, who had fetched the ball out of his net only once en route to the final. The final would belong to one man. Ronaldo was 1v1 against Kahn three times in the first half, but found no way through. Momentum swung in the second half with a pair of clinical finishes to take his tournament total to eight. With that came the Golden Boot, the World Cup trophy and redemption. At the end of it, all the tears flowed. R9 spoke about after that game quite recently. In that moment, I felt complete. I hadn't just won the World Cup, I'd also won a battle with my body that lasted more than two years. That was the biggest victory of my career and of my life. Numerous great players have never won a World Cup. Ronaldo was in the squad for three consecutive finals but had to bide his time to make the moment his own. The best things do not always come to those who wait but for the Brazilian Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, Some might argue the greater it was worth waiting for. This was the true story of redemption. a story that started at France 98 and finished at World Cup 2002. What were your feelings after Ronaldo finally did it?
3: Oh, absolutely delighted for him. I think any football fan worth their salt would have felt the same way. I remember watching the first group game against Turkey with a 1-2-1 and there were still doubts about his fitness even going in. And he scores a cracking equaliser, ball whipped in, he just throws himself at it, you know, brave, brave as a lion, and from there on, he just, he just, he was on a mission, probably from the quarterfinals on, when they beat England, and although he didn't score that day, there was only going to be one country winning this World Cup, and that scene at the end, where he's hoisted up, you know, and the flags around him, and the players around him, and uh, it's magnificent, he was, he was a joy to watch. Played with a smile on his face, Ronaldo, and uh, what a player.
0: Brazil, in the end, 2-0. Suggests quite a comfortable sort of victory in the final, but Germany made them work for it.
2: They did indeed. I think Germany give a great account of themselves. Very unlucky not to score. We talk about the the finesse and the attacking options Brazil had, but they were able to stand strong that day. The experience of Lucio and Cafu at the back as well, too, not Roque Jr. Yes, Germany, <laughs> Germany did have a, have a go with them, but... As Dano said, it it was just their name was on the trophy.
3: Just so happy that he, he this was his World Cup. He deserved it. He really, really deserved it.
0: And what did you make of his haircut? Brutal. You weren't thinking of getting it, no?
3: No, well the, the, the only thing I can think of is that uh, electricity got cut out of the hotel <laughs> midway through a head shave. <laughs> and he just kept it. And he just thought, I'm going with it. I'm going with it. Can't can't spill one for me here. Mm. <laughs> Or who, I think they brought, I think they flew uh, a young Brazilian barber over by the name of Babeto. Either that or it was uh, Edmundo's pet monkey.
0: You know what? Ronaldo's actually come out and apologized for, about that haircut because obviously millions of Brazilian children then ended up having the same haircut.
3: That <laughs> he was apologizing to all the mothers, wasn't he? Uh-huh. For, the, for their kids uh, looking, looking for that haircut. I think, I think. Uh, I think, that a young Elliott, I've got
2: record. I think he yep. still has it now. <laughs> <laughs> See, says the two boys who got their hair streaked at the exact same time. Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: we did, and uh, I was allowed to keep mine. Dan wasn't. I wasn't no, because I had a
3: Thomas Kushak head, so but, but <laughs> <laughs> quickly told to go and sort myself out.
0: So now we're going to pick our team of the tournament, lads. Who have we went
2: with? The nets. Yes, it's Oliver Kian. The angry German kept five clean sheets on the build-up to the final. Um, The only man to put the ball past him was Robbie Keane in injury time, and he was fuming. He's our number one.
0: At right-back, I went with Cafu. It was his third World Cup final. He'd won two. He'd set the benchmark for right-backs across the world. Alex Ferguson claimed that he must have had two hearts. And this is the best bit of the whole final for me at the very end. He wrote, Regina, I love you, on his shirt as he lifted the trophy for the second time, paying tribute to his wife, who he had known since he was two years of age. What a man. Magical, Nice touch.
2: Who's at centre-half? And I'm going another Brazilian, and it's Lucio. Who's his centre-half partner? It's Sol Campbell, the sole man, even despite England's defeat in the quarter-final against Brazil. He was the best defender on the pitch. He wasn't at fault for any other goals. He was superb against the RGs in the in the group stage and he's in there beside Lucio who the hell is going to get past these two men?
0: At left back I've went for another Brazilian it's Roberto Carlos, solid tournament, he had one assist Uh, he probably had a wee bit more defensive work to do than usual but he did do it well and he was man of the match against China. Who have we went with at right midfield Dan?
3: Yes at right midfield I've went for a box of batteries it's Park Ji Sung who had a brilliant tournament for South Korea helping them get to the semi-final he played right midfield for them in a 3-4-3, which is an energy zapper of a position to play. He was outstanding all the way through. He wore the 21 shirt for South Korea and he would get his big move then to the PSV PSVA Owen.
0: Who is tucked in beside him at centre midfield, Mush,
2: It's Michael Ballack. Yes, the big German centre midfielder who could do everything and was vital in the knockout stages. He scored their winning goal in the quarterfinal and the semifinal. But unfortunately, he received the booking and missed the final. Now, whether or not he would have made a difference because he has that awful record doing a bit of a Jimmy White and choking in finals, don't think it's his fault But the teams he's involved in. But Balik's in there to keep Park right.
0: And beside Ballock is Nicholas Butt, one of the two ginger oh. ninjas. Uh, he was brought in as the replacement for Steven Gerrard, but he was more than a replacement. He was England's midfield anchor and he was Pele's player of the tournament. He was immense throughout Probably did tire away a wee bit in that Brazil game, but against Argentina, he was immense and more than deserving of making it into the team of the tournament. Who's on the left wing?
3: On the left wing, it's Yildiray Basturk. Yes, the little crafty Turk slots in the left midfield. He also had a wonderful season for Bayer Leverkusen in Germany and followed that up, much like Lucio, in an outstanding World Cup performance for his country, helping Turkey reach the semi-finals.
0: And who is up front, Mush? Ah, Ronaldo, no question, no brainer, it's R9. And he is joined up top by the German powerhouse, Klosa. He was probably overshadowed by R9 at this tournament, but he still won the silver boot with five goals and got two man of the matches as well. So he is deserving of a place up front. No Oliver Bierhoff, but Klose goes in instead. Who is going to manage this team of Galacticos?
3: Uh, There's only one man who can manage this mad outfit and it's Big Phil Scalore, the Brazil manager who led Brazil to the trophy. It's very hard to avoid the manager who eventually wins the competition. So Big Phil Scalore, an easy option, and I think he'd do a good job with this outfit.
0: It was a very, very, very busy summer after World Cup 2002 as manager's tried to grab those players who were stars during the summer. Some players got transfers just because they had one good game, others because they really deserved it. We look back now at the best and worst transfers after World Cup 2002. Dan, who makes your top five best transfers?
3: And at five, it's Robbie Keane. Yes, the Irish striker who lit up the World Cup, moved from Leeds United to Tottenham Hotspurs on deadline day for £7 million. What a bargain and a great bit of business, not only by Tottenham, but by previous life manager, Glenn Hoddle. In at number four, it's Michael Ballack, who moved from Bayer Leverkusen to Bayern Munich for £6 million. The big German turned down Real Madrid to stay in his homeland and go and conquer Germany with the giants. In at number three, and it's Rio Ferdinand. Yes, the seal goes on at Leeds United as Rio Ferdinand moved to Old Trafford and joined Manchester United for a world record for a centre-back at the time of £30 million. What a transfer this was at the time. Such hatred and a great story behind it of of the Leeds collapse. And in at number two, it's the player of the tournament, it's Arnaud Ronaldo, who left Inter Milan for Real Madrid in a deal total worth £45 million, including add-ons. And what a bit of business this was again from Real Madrid, adding to Zinedine Zidane, adding to Luis Figo. Ronaldo was the third Galactica in through the doors. And my number one best bit of business from the 2002 summer is Alessandro Nesta, who moved from Lazio to AC Milan for £28 million. Lazio were in disarray at the time. They had got themselves into debt and they had to sell off their skipper, who actually didn't want to leave. He would turn down Juventus, Inter, and Real Madrid to join AC Milan, and this is just cool, isn't
0: he? What a defender! Yeah, Ugh. yeah,
2: outstanding.
0: Brilliant. Matchman, who makes your
2: worst bits of business? In at number five is Roberto Acuna from Real Zaragoza to Deportivo La Cruña for 11 million euros. His nickname was El Toro, which stands for bull, and this was clear at the 2002 World Cup when the Paraguay International elbowed Michael Ballack in the face and was sent for an early bath. Despite that, Deportivo signed the pelter from Paraguay to give them strength in more ways than one to their squad, which was in the Champions League. However, El Toro's time at Deportivo was non-existent. He first had to serve a five-match suspension for actions in a previous life at Zaragoza the previous season, and 14 appearances in four seasons where he was loaned out twice, he never could fight his way into the team, maybe because he was fighting management. He did earn 100 caps for his country, and at the age of 43, he helped Deportiva Rakuta in his home country gain promotion to the Paraguay second division. Number four, it's Martin Lursen to AC Milan for 9.9 million euros from Verona and Parma, as he was co owned. Yes. Championship managers will understand the cone transfer policy. Nothing more frustrating trying to buy a player from Serie A side in the noughties in Chapman than finding out he was co meaning you'd have to place two bids on a player. Larson was alone at SE for the 0102 one 2 season and his impressive spells at the World Cup for Denmark, they signed him permanently. Essie also purchased a certain Nesta that summer and it was game over for Larson. He only notched up 20 appearances in two seasons and he wasn't in the Milan squad that won the Champions League final that season. The summer of 04, Aston Villa came in and signed him where he would become a Villa cult hero. Number three, it's Hugo Viana to Newcastle United from Sporting for 8.5 million pounds. The great Sir Bobby Robson must have had contacts and he got told this lad's a player. Well, Hugo had just won the Young European Player of the Year after his debut season and he'd also won the Portuguese League title, so everything looked good. Well, an unassuming spell at the magpies for Hugo, he couldn't find any sort of form and even was mentored by the late great Gary Speed. 39 appearances in two years. He was loaned back to sporting where he rekindled his form and then Valencia required his services. Number two, it's Francesco Cucu from SC Milan to Inter Milan. No fee involved. It was a straight swap where SC Milan got the services of a certain Clarence Seedorf. I think we know listeners who got the better deal. He played at the World Cup and was regarded to be the, the next best left back in the country behind Maldini. His time at Inter was blighted by injuries and he only made 26 appearances in five years. Though he's publicly stated Inter forced him to undergo back surgery and in the end he had to recover for two years. He was released in 2007 and then he got a trial at Man City where he showed up to the training ground smoking a cigar.
0: Dan, you know a few boys have showed up to training smoking cigars. I know plenty, and Francesco Coco's
3: another one. Well, you'd have been better off with a box of Coco Pops playing at left back. Because <laughs> he was cat, cat man do.
2: And number one, it's Hajj Juf from Lawns to Liverpool for £13.5 million. I've already covered this tramp in me Madman of the Week piece a few issues back. If you haven't listened to it already, it's still available. Wink, wink. 79 appearances in two years where he, he notched a great return of six goals and only three of those in the Premiership. While at Liverpool, he was a real bad egg on and off the pitch, spitting on fans, disrespecting everybody, even his teammates. He was shipped out to Bolton where even Big Sam couldn't change Jeff's ways. As Neil Warnock said, sewer rat," but that would be giving sewer rats a bad name. I have no more to say on this player. That's it. I'm done. You have anything more to say about this sewer rat, Dan?
3: I have plenty to say about the deal because Liverpool had Nicholas Anelka on loan during the 0102 season, had the option to sign him permanently, and Juro Hulier decides to buy himself a bag of weed and go and buy Juve. <laughs> it's a baffling decision. I hope it comes up again because I don't know what football someone's watching where they think that Juve is somehow better than
0: Anelka. Is this one of these ones where it's like people are just getting carried away with the World Cup?
3: Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen it before, you, you know, Euro 96, Sir Alex yeah. Ferguson, for example, you know, thinking, Carl Poborsky's Chris George Watt, Best. Watt, you know, <laughs> the next Georgie Best. So it can happen. I think managers, managers and scouts get very excited over uh, maybe a couple of good performances at a big tournament. <laughs>
0: So now it's time to pick the managers in our Simpsons 11. We covered the 11 players in last week's pod, but now we need a manager or managers, depending on what mush the matchman has went with. Dan did float the option of uh, Roy Evans-Gerard Houllier partnership. Matchman, who have you went with?
2: Yes, so the 11 men have been assembled but who the hell is going to be in charge of keeping these players in check and getting the best out of them? The manager I had in mind actually was a coach at the 2002 World Cup and has great man management skills. Is Giovanni Trapattoni, who looks a lot like Don DiMaggio in The Simpsons, who is Fat Tony's boss and appears in the episode when Krusty owes money to Fat Tony. And of course, Homer is involved as he's enrolled at Krusty's Clown College. But... I'm feeling Trapatone needs some assistance in handling these Wildcats. So I've enlisted a number two, a co-manager, a very experienced coach, Felix Magat, who is the dead ringer for Hans Molman, which will come in handy as Molman once got hit in the groin with a football.
0: What do you think would happen if Trapatone was made a flat, flavourless
2: Manhattan? Would there be a kiss of death involved? I think if he went home that night... There may be a horse's head in the bed,
0: brilliant lads. So we've got two managers now managing the Simpsons 11. The team is complete. Dan, are you happy with the final choices?
3: I'm delighted with the final choices because you know, just looking at our 11, you know, a feel a second manager was needed, particularly to keep an eye on Kearney and Freddie Quimby, who is a violent man, as we've seen. <laughs> uh, he attacks <laughs> waiters so. <laughs> So I feel the matchman has made a shrewd decision bringing in Hans Mollman to assist.
0: Unfortunately, that's it for our World Cup review. And it's also it for the series, lads. It's been emotional. It's been a roller coaster. We have went through some unbelievable football moments. Dan, how do you feel now that uh, we've come to the end of season one? It's
3: always sad to come towards the end of the season, particularly our first one. Big thank you to all our listeners who uh, keeps the whole thing going, really. Keeps us enthusiastic. While it's nice to have a break, uh, very much looking forward to uh, Season 2.
0: Absolutely. Mush, how do you feel about the end of Season
2: 1 and, and going into Season 2? I'm happy. I've really enjoyed um, these last few weeks um, definitely doing the research and being able to just, you know, roll back the years um, with two very close friends and aim to put put a smile on, a, on people's faces that are listening and make them try and make them laugh. Really enjoyed it. And we'll be back listeners. So Be ready.
0: Yes, we will absolutely be back. Uh, we are going to release season two sometime around the summer, but we're still here. If you want to send in your football stories or matches that you want covered, then you can do that at jumpers podcast at, at gmail.com. And of course we've got our Facebook and Twitter pages as well. Uh, so please keep in touch. And we'll look forward to season two with Stephen, Dan, and Mush the Matchman. So, thanks from all of us, folks. And it's good night from me, and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from
1: Mush the Matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mush. See you soon.